Christ and what's going on in his life. So where we pick up today, Matthew tells us of the time that Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown, and he, as his custom apparently, is he comes and he teaches in the synagogue. And what you'll notice, if you'll take note from this point forward in the Gospel of Matthew, you see a, a kind of a, a, a greatening or a, a, a greater polarization of the people and their response to who Jesus is. And so you'll have this kind of separating of people who would say he is the Messiah and people who would say, no, he's not, he's just a man or he's a good prophet, he's a good teacher, but he's not the Messiah. And so you start seeing this dividing line and polarizing effect of his ministry. The same decision lies before us where we have to understand and determine who Christ is when we have the evidence of Christ before us. We've talked before in here that indifference is not an option. It's not an option that you can just merely be indifferent to the gospel, that you can be indifferent to who Christ is. We each have to answer, who is Jesus Christ? And what does that mean for my life? What are the implications of my life? It's been framed in this way before. Is he a raving lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he the Lord of all creation? Who is Christ? Who is Christ? Let's look at our first section this morning, the, the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth there in Matthew 13, 53. We read the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things and they took offense at him but Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief now both Mark and Luke record this same event Luke is perhaps the most detailed. Luke tends to be more detail-oriented, and he lists out more, more details for us. That passage is found in Luke 4, 16 to 30. We find out from Luke that in this moment, what happens, some of the background is that, that Jesus comes in, in the synagogue to teach, and when he does, they hand him a scroll. Do you remember maybe this story? They hand him the scroll, and it's the scroll of Isaiah, and he, he opens, it says he unrolled the, or unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. This is what he read from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Luke 4, 18 and 19. He, he opens up Isaiah, he reads that, and what he says next infuriates the people. What he says next, he says, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, he sat down, and it says all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. They're all looking at him. And Jesus says this, he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing. So in that moment, he comes back to Nazareth and he proclaimed that in your hearing right now, in this moment, these words from Isaiah are fulfilled and I'm sitting right in front of you, right in front of you. So the people then are upset, they're, they're angry, and they're so outraged, Luke tells us, that they run him out of town, they take him out of town, and they take him to the cliff that Nazareth is kind of situated on so that they can push him over the side of the cliff. But it's not God's timing. And so it says Jesus walked away. This is what's happening. The problem of the people here in, in Matthew 13 and what Luke tells us there in Luke 4 and then later in, in Mark 6, the, the problem that the people had was not with what he said, but where he was from. Their problematic, the was problematic was his family. He was respected. They, they had no problem with what he said. If, if we just consider the things that we understand about Jesus' upbringing and, and his, his growth as a young man in Luke 2.40, we, we read that while growing up in Nazareth, Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. In Luke 4.22, we are told that all spoke well of him, this is in Nazareth, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. What did we read in Matthew 13, 54? There, we read that they, the people were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? They were blown away. They were taken aback. They were amazed at who he was, what he was doing, what he was saying, what he was teaching. They were astonished by him. The people had no problem with his teaching. It caused them to be amazed. They didn't refute his mighty works. They didn't say, oh, he's not doing that. That's trickery. No, they beheld his mighty works. They were astonished. They were amazed. But they couldn't get past the fact that he had grown up among them. They couldn't get past the fact that they knew his family. They knew the household. They knew who Joseph was. They knew his trade. They knew his mother. They couldn't get past it so much so that what is their response? It says they took offense at him in verse 57. They took offense at him. They positioned themselves against him. Do you know what the problem was for the people? The, the problem they struggled with was a deficient Christology. Christology, for those of you who are in our small group, you just went through a study that ended up a few weeks ago called Knowing Christ. And it was a, a theology of the doctrine of Christ. Christology is the, the study of the doctrine of Christ, who Christ is and what he accomplished, the work of Christ. It's Christology, the study. And here we see that people have a, a deficient Christology. They, they understand and they would look and accept the humanity of Christ. They look and they say, he grew up among us. We, we've seen him, we've beheld him, we know his family. But they rejected the divinity of Christ. They accepted the, the tangible, touchable, beholdable, what they could see in his humanity, but they rejected his divinity. And so that brings a question for us we have to look at and we have to take and, and, and imagine if we are there, the question we'd have to ask is what evidence from Jesus' life shows him to be more than just a man? What evidence is there? 
what would cause us to look and to step back and say, he is not just a man. Do you, do you remember how John described Jesus, the coming of Christ in John chapter 1? The Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18 is kind of the, the prologue. It's the introduction to the Gospel. And John writes in a, in a very much more of a theological purpose. He, he's showing the signs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that he was divine, that he was the Son of God, right? And so John writes, and when he writes, he comes to verse 14, and he says, the Word, talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us, or he tabernacled among us. He pitched his, his tent and, and dwelt with us. And it says, we beheld his glory. But the thing is here, we see in Matthew 13, is that those he dwelt among, those he dwelt closest to, could, got, could not get past the familiarity that they had with Jesus. They were so familiar with his, with his family that, that it became a stumbling block. They, they didn't accuse him of being some sinful rebel rouser growing up. They didn't accuse him of sinning. They didn't accuse him of being rebellious and disobedient to his parents. They just said, we know his parents. We're familiar with this guy. We played with him. We ran around. We goofed off together. We know him. And so familiarity became a stumbling block. Familiarity led to unbelief. In verse 58, we see that, 1358, it says, He did not do mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Familiarity led the people to be unwilling to believe. So in the face of the incredible works and wisdom of Jesus, the people were instead incredulous. They refused to believe. They refused to see and behold who He was. Oh, this is a great tragedy. When the familiarity that one has with Jesus leads him or her to take for granted who he is and to refuse to believe him. It is this assumed familiarity that, oh, I know who he is. I'm, okay. And we just shrug it off and never look to him and trust him. Just so familiar with him. I'll never forget going to Thailand, and I think it was uh, 2004, if I remember correctly. Some of you were on that trip. I, I never forget going there, and the reason I won is because Thailand is the one place that I've been in my life where when we said, do you know about Jesus, or you would refer to the name Jesus, the people literally had no context. They had no idea. It was like me looking at you and saying, hey, do you know Miguel? And you going, uh-uh, I don't, never heard of him, Right? It's the same thing in, in South America or, or in Europe. I, I've been there and, and you say, hey, do you know about Jesus? And they have some framework, most of them, not all of them. A lot of people have never heard of Christ in our day. But a lot of them might have a, a wrong view of Christ. They at least know, but in Thailand they didn't. And so we would teach the mighty works of, of Christ. We would teach his teachings. And they did not take it for granted. They were amazed at who Christ was, at, at his mighty works, at his great wisdom, at what he taught. They were astounded and amazed. But we live in a place where it's so easy for familiarity to be a stumbling block. Some of you in here have heard stories from Scripture since the time you had ears. <laughs> like before you were born, 
you were sitting in Sunday school classes. When you were born, you were born right into the nursery. You've gone to church all your life. Your parents talk about Christ and the gospel. You've been to every retreat. You've got every shirt. You've done every disciple now growing up. You've served in every way possible. You're a Sunday school teacher. You've taught Sunday school for 50 years, perhaps. Very familiar. Some of you are familiar. You never trusted Christ, even though you know the gospel. You can tell parables. You've heard of them. You can refer to mighty works in Scripture. You can even cite Bible verses that you've memorized. You're familiar. But yet you remain in unbelief. Because familiarity has become this stumbling block. It's just, oh, okay. It's this casual idea of who Christ is. It's just kind of you shrug it off. I did that again. I heard that again. And you've heard the gospel so many times that you just take it for granted. Listen, you need to seriously consider the outcome and the consequence of your refusal to believe. You need to consider the consequences of unbelief. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And it's just not, ta- it's not just talking about physical death, but eternal spiritual death. The death of death, the second death where we die over and over, where we're eternally punished by God Almighty. That we're an object of His wrath. Listen, the challenge of living in the Bible Belt is not letting the apathetic familiarity of those around you hinder you from trusting Christ for salvation. And that's why we have to ask that question does the response and opinion of man determine who Christ is? How much validity, how much do you listen, how much do you depend on the opinions and the responses of men in how you respond to Christ? Nazareth had the Son of God living in front of him. I, I, I once had somebody tell me that they would change their mind They would reconsider the gospel. They would reconsider following God if he came to them and stood before them. I just chuckled and said, do you see what you're saying? He's already done that. But you're demanding he come to you in your time, your moment, your place, rather than when he came. I mean, the people of Nazareth grew up They saw him. They lived life with him. He was before them, and yet they just took him for granted. Yet they continued in their unbelief due to hard-heartedness. The hard-heartedness that was within them prevented them from moving past familiarity to faith. It prevented them. It was a stumbling block. They refused to behold the truth and move to trust Christ. They just didn't do it. It was all because they were so familiar with him. And so they look and they ask, what is the question they ask? Where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works, and then they refer back to his family. That's the question they ask. Where did he get it? Not, is it true? They take offense to him. And the same is true, these kind of skeptical, doubting questions. Where did he get this stuff? Who can it really be? We see similar doubting questions today. People who would say, could, could Jesus really have done the miracles that the Bible teaches us about? I mean, really, are miracles really possible? Listen, I, I moved my daughter into college Thursday with two carloads of stuff 
into like a six by six square and they're all fit. Miracles happen. <laughs> all right? They do. She's not here. I don't know if she'll listen to this. Probably not, so don't tell her. But, but people say, could Jesus really have done those miracles? And so it's led a lot of people to kind of fall in and to be skeptical and so familiar that they would just say, you know what, I'm just going to fall into this kind of naturalistic view that if nature and science can't prove everything, then I'm not going to believe it. But our God does do miracles. He is a great and a mighty God that does things that amaze us and astound us. Or you have skeptical, doubting questions like, can there really only be one way to salvation like Jesus taught? Jesus is very clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, really? Would he really say that? Could that really be true? And it leads people to kind of stay in this area of inclusivism. If, if it's not completely inclusive that everybody can be saved, then I'm not going to listen. It's not the right question to ask. Or maybe was Jesus really God? Maybe he's just a man. He's just a good teacher. And the humanity of Christ is attested clearly. But the body of evidence before you and me would shout and display that he was more than just a man. He was the Son of God. So those of you who sit here this morning that are unbelievers, I, I say the challenge before you is to push past familiarity that you may have and to trust Jesus and the gospel, to trust, to turn to him in faith, to look at the body of evidence before you. Don't just let the familiarity you have that there's churches all around. It's just kind of what we do. It's our social thing. It's just kind of what we do culturally. But no, look at the body of evidence and look and behold and see what is it that lies before me? Who is Christ? Who is Christ? And if you truly do that, if you truly look, you will see that he is the divine son of God. That he is fully God. He's fully man. That he came and he lived a sinless life. You will see that. You will see that he did indeed die and he did raise from the grave. That he lives and he reigns. And that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. No one else but Jesus Christ. That's what you will see if you push past the familiarity that you may have and look at the body of evidence before you. Let's look at John 14. In John 14, we read of the death of John the Baptist. Matthew kind of gives us an aside here. Is, remember, we're not in a strict chronology, but he, he brings these two events together for us. It says in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, that just simply means that, that he uh, had a smaller area that he ruled over, maybe a fourth of the kingdom. Instead of ruling over the whole kingdom, a Tetrarch just had a, a small segment that he had. He actually, if I'm not mistaken, he was removed from power because he tried to get the whole kingdom, and he was removed for that later, but that's beside the point now. Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
So he sees all this Jesus is doing, and he says, that's John the Baptist. That's, it's got to be John the Baptist. He was doing amazing things. He's back. And then Matthew gives us a kind of a historical aside. He takes us back to tell us why Herod thought that. He's, verse 3, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and the head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. That's a pretty gruesome scene. It's pretty tragic to consider here. We think what Herod had done. Herod was living in immorality. He was with his brother's wife. His brother was still alive at this time. Yet Herod was in relationship. And so John was calling attention to that. He's calling him away from immorality. And we, we read elsewhere that, that Herod, Herod um, heard him gladly in Mark 6, the parallel passage. We, we learn that, that Herod uh, heard gladly from John. And the reason that Mark tells us that Herod heard from John gladly is because Herod understood him to be a holy and a righteous man. He respected John. He respected what he said. It intrigued him, so he listened to him. But just like the, the people in Nazareth had the problem of a, of a deficient Christology, here we have Herod having a problem of a misplaced Christology. That instead of looking and attributing the works and wonders of, to the, to, of, of a man uh, and attributing John the Baptist's works and wonders to Jesus, instead of doing that, he's misplaced that. Instead, he should be seeing that the works and wonders that Christ is doing is because he is God. And he's not looking and saying, this is the Son of God. Behold, the Son of God is before me. He's looking and going, wow, these are mighty works. Um, this must be John the Baptist. John the Baptist is back. I just beheaded him, though, so I'm not real sure how he's back. What's going on? All right, John, there, I mean, Herod is confused. He's panicking. He's in fear. Herod leads, quote, unquote, out of fear. Herod makes rash decisions in a moment where he's invited all the nobles and leaders of his area in for a party. A young girl, probably a young teenage girl, most likely, what she was doing, danced for him. Don't know the exact nature of the dance, but more than likely, historically, it probably wasn't a good one. But it pleased him. And because of that, what does he say? I'll give you anything you want. Up to half the kingdom. I'll give it to you. What do you want? So she talks to her mom and says, we want the head of John the Baptist. Herod doesn't lead. Herod's scared of the people he's given oaths to. He's scared of the people around him. And so, even though... He regrets it. It says he was grieved over it and sorrowful. He comes and does what she asked. He did it anyway. He did not lead. He was no leader at all. 
What was it that got John in trouble? It was his boldness. It was his boldness to proclaim truth and to call Herod away from immorality. Herodias did not like that. But she was the immorality. She didn't like it. Herod most likely didn't like it. Now, when we look at Matthew and how he arranges his gospel, you consider Matthew 10. Do you remember the missions discourse? Do you remember what Jesus talked about when he sent the disciples out? He sent them out and he, he told them, warned them what? That they would be rejected? He told them of coming persecution. Do you remember this? In the tail end of Matthew chapter 10, he starts teaching them, reminding them that persecution will happen. So it is no coincidence that then he teaches parables, right, about the kingdom, and he talks about this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like, and then he brings us immediately to show us what? Hey, you're going to experience persecution? Let me give you two examples. Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, and John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Christ, lost his head for Christ. Yes, Christ was right. Persecution will indeed come. John was killed because he stood for truth. He stood for God. He proclaimed the truth. We have to know and reckon with the understanding that God, that, that standing for God will not be easy and it may indeed bring consequences. In, in Matthew 14, 4, we read that John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. It doesn't just say, John said one time, hey, you shouldn't have Herodias. no. What it says is he continuously does this. The, 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 the mood of, of the Greek there, he continuously, he, he repeatedly, it's given us this idea that John is repeatedly coming before him and saying, hey, you don't need to be doing this. This is not right. This is immoral. Stop. He's continually doing this. He was fearless. He was bold. We need fearless Christians in our day. Brothers and sisters, we need to be fearless and stand for Christ. Stand for truth. We need fearless Christians who will count the cost and be ready to pay the cost. Perhaps the cost of losing popularity. Perhaps the cost of losing a position on a team. Perhaps the cost of a promotion at work. Perhaps the cost of ridicule in the community or perhaps even the cost of our lives if it so came to it. We don't need, we need believers cowering behind pretty buildings, quaint bumper stickers, and really cool t-shirts. We need believers who will stand for Christ, live for truth, proclaim and live out biblical ethics in life. But we have to know, I have to know in saying that, that that could demand a great cost. It could carry with it a great cost. I mean, think about John. Do, do you remember, do you know how Jesus described John when he was asked about him? We've already covered this. It's Matthew 11. You remember? His disciples came, there was conversation, and so John had a question and then Jesus makes a statement about John. Do you remember how he described him? He described him as the greatest. He, he says in Matthew eleven eleven, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
yet John the Baptist was killed by a weak leader who led out of the fear of man. He died. Yet he was the greatest among men. So that leads me to ask a question. Was John's, wife, or was John's life wasted? Did, did John waste his life? I mean, he was thrown in prison because he kept repeatedly saying this to Herod and Herodias. He keeps repeatedly calling them away from immorality. And so at a young age, he's thrown into prison and beheaded. I mean, was his life wasted? He surely had such potential. The world would surely look and go, what a tragedy, what a waste of life. He was so young, he had all of his years ahead of him. It was just a waste. Oh, but in God's plan, in God's purpose, in God's economy, his life was not wasted. His life was well lived. Here's the truth. The life of a faithful saint is never a wasted life. The life of a faithful saint is never wasted. Psalm 116, 15 says, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious, precious in the eyes or the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. J.C. Ryle's writing on this, and, and he says that when he comes to Matthew 14, 1 to 12, he said, here we have a page ripped out in God's book of martyrs where John gives his life for what God had called him to. Listen, the success and the value of your life and my life is not determined by the number of days we live, but it's determined by the way we live the days we're given. Okay? It's not determined by the number of days that we live. I think about that when I have friends who have lost loved ones that are at such a young age but loved ones who have proclaimed and stood for Christ's glory and been faithful to Christ in their life. A life well lived. We have no guarantee that a faithful saint will not meet a fretful death. But what we do have guaranteed is that we know as believers that our eternity is sure. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 assure us of that and that our suffering and afflictions are not meaningless. They're not meaningless. We don't, we don't have time this morning, but look at and read 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. And Paul talks about the suffering, the afflictions, the, the possibility of death, and, and that it has great meaning because of who they're living for. They carry about this treasure in jars of clay, not to show that it's all about us, but that the surpassing glory of Christ is made known through us. John's life in particular was not wasted, for, I'd say, for two reasons. Number one, he lived for God's greater glory. John lived for God's greater glory. Do you happen to know John 3.30 in the Gospel of John? He's writing, he's telling about the life of John the Baptist. And, and John has an encounter with the Jews, the people. And, and there's this kind of this idea of, well, John's got his following. And are you not intimidated by what Jesus is doing? Like he's got his following. What's going on? And John says, he must increase and I must decrease in John 3.30. He must increase, I must must decrease. John lived for God's greater glory. He was the epitome of one carrying a spotlight on Christ, that his life reflected and magnified and shined bright on the life of Christ. So his life was not wasted. 
And John, secondly, he was faithful to do what God put before him to do. God called him to prepare a way, to be a voice in the wilderness that would prepare a way for the Messiah. And John, the last, you could say, the last of the Old Testament prophets, faithfully did that. He carried out the task in front of him. He prepared the way. He lived his life as a spotlight shining brightly upon Christ, and he did not shrink back from speaking the truth. John's life was not wasted. And so I would ask you today, believer, would you resolve today to say, my life is not going to be wasted. I'm going to be faithful to live for God's greater glory. I'm going to be faithful to live for him and to do what he's put before me. For some of you, that may mean that you would be faithful to teach Sunday school for 40, for 50 years. It may mean, like Sunday night, we heard testimony from Vertries. It may mean that you go and you go to the prison every time you can to share the gospel with inmates. I think it was since 1983, if I remember right. 1983, do you hear that? 40 years of going to the prison. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it just means you saying, I'm going to be faithful to do that. Maybe it means you saying, you know, I'm going to be faithful to pour out my life into the lives of my children to disciple them at home and to raise them up, not so that I can coddle them, not that I can wrap them in and say, I want you to stay here in Pulaski County as close as you can be because I'll feel really bad and I'll miss you if you leave, but raise them up to send them out that they would go wherever God calls them for the glory of God. Maybe it, maybe it means that, that, that you say, you know, I'm going to faithfully walk into my job every day. I'm going to faithfully walk onto the construction site. I'm going to faithfully walk into my school. I'm going to faithfully walk into my office. I'm going to faithfully walk into wherever it is that God's called you to serve. And I'm going to faithfully, intentionally, strategically leverage my opportunities and my, my influences for the sake of the gospel. And I would say, I want to make disciples. I'm going to go. I'm going to make disciples wherever I am. I'm going to faithfully do that. God's put that before me. I'm going to do it. Or maybe it means that that you would say being faithful is me listening to and answering God's call to full-time missions or full-time pastoral ministry or full-time church planning. That you would say, you know what? God's calling me to go. God's calling me to go. I want to go back with Hannah and Emil. I'm retired. I have time on my hands. I have the resources. I don't have anything tying me down. I can go. I'm going to go. I'm going into college. I could go. I could prepare. Maybe God's calling you into pastoral ministry. There are churches across our county and across our nations gathering right now that have no pastor. No pastor. I was talking to somebody for an hour and a half on my way back from Tennessee the other day telling me about a church that has been without a pastor for over a year of any kind. Of any kind. 200 people. Sheep without a shepherd. Maybe God's calling you to pastoral ministry. Maybe God's calling you to send out and to go into missions. We want to come alongside you. Whatever that may be. Whether it's being a faithful Sunday school teacher, we want to equip you. There's places that Matt needs you to serve. There's places where you can serve and teach and disciple. We want you to step into that. We want to equip you to disciple your kids, to raise them up, to send them out. 
We want to come alongside you in that. We want to equip you. If God's calling you to ministry, to missions, to pastoral ministry, we want you to come and talk to one of us about being in Grace Mint, that we can give you some ministry intensive training to equip you to live for his glory and to prepare for pastoral ministry or missions ministry, whatever that may be. We want to help you and equip you to be faithful to whatever God calls you to do so that the end of your life, whether that's 18 years of life, 36 years of life, 48 years of life, or 88 years of life, or 98. Some of you are past 88 and pushing forward. Whatever it may be, that at the end you would be able to say, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight, and I've kept the faith. I've been faithful to do what God put before me. Believers, would you resolve this day to do that? I don't know exactly what it means for your life. I know what it meant for my life. Would you resolve to do that? Unbeliever, Push past familiarity to place your faith in Christ. Look at the body of evidence before you of who Christ is and trust Him. Believer, live your life for the glory of God. Live your life for the glory of God knowing that the life of a faithful saint is never, never wasted. Let's pray.